0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: Having painted this dark picture that, oh, things do look black, the universe does almost look like it's possessed. And I'm wondering if then we need to go back and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, Can we just, in a kind of application of normal ways of human knowing if we apply ourselves diligently that we can work ourselves out of this i don't you know is it demonic maybe that's the wrong word but the idea that in some way this thing has us in our grip that it's going to take a cataclysmic breaking in to undo uh, the darkness
1: yeah i mean that's the hope of advent right uh we sit here and we await in the darkness the coming of christ into the world I think at the most you could say at the level of human cognition is that the very structure itself of paying attention to things, asking intelligible questions that anticipate answers that might be judged true means that perhaps we can anticipate that God is going to work all this out, but apart from revelation, apart from Jesus Christ coming into the world, like, you don't have that. I mean, is that what you're getting at?
0: Yeah, and I guess that going back to somebody like Wright, it's not that I'm picking on him, but I think he's kind of representative of the best of a form of theology that we've all inherited. And that is that the way that we normally understand Christ is the progression of, and whether even progression is the right word, but at least you have the unfolding of, you know, there's the fall of Adam, and then there's Abraham, and then there's Israel. And we understand who Christ is in the context of that history, so that we're going to see him in light of that history. I'm not sure, maybe you can uh, explain to me the grand difference between the search for the historical Jesus And the historical critical uh, attempt to examine and get behind, you know, isn't it the same thing, that we're always searching?
1: Yeah, Uh, and I think that search is just totally grounded in this idea of picture thinking. And so that's, that's where I think the critical realism is a breath of fresh air, because it's, why would we even assume you could ask the question this way? When we have these wonderful texts that by faith we consider to be the word of God and have the venerable tradition of, become, uh, of being understood as you know, sacred, right? You know, these are, are sacred texts. Why would we assume that where the meaning really lies is in the historical event behind all these things? That's the product of picture thinking. Knowing is like taking a look. If we can't get to the history, if we can't get to the fact of the matter and reconstructing the history, how could we possibly know anything about God? And to that, I am happy to rail against. But that's based on a whole lot of philosophical assumptions, right? That's based on the idea that uh, development is bad, that the texts themselves are obstructions to knowing the reality, and we're only going to know God in the reality. All these are just assumptions that people have come up with in biblical studies that could drive one nuts. Because what we've been given, and what by faith we take to, you know, as a matter of doctrine, we take to be a sacred text, the Word of God, is a theological document that's to reveal God to us. And so I think somebody like Ben Meyer is saying, I mean, the history is all well and good. Like, let's study history. But it's not the history behind the text that's going to gradually introduce Jesus to you. Uh, rather, it's by coming to the text and understanding that as we read, we're going to develop understanding that then becomes personal knowledge for us that we might assert as true and be able to share with others. Uh, we can have a theological conversation. And I think that's perhaps the difference. I really don't know how NT Wright plays into what I just said, and that's just my own ignorance.
0: Mark presents a tension within himself. You know, he he does talk apocalyptically. You know, that we have something new in Christ, and that this then changes up. This is the context, and of course, in that kind of Christocentric reading, you're not going to read from the beginning forward. You're going to read from the center mm-hmm. in both directions, so that you're going to re understand, you're going to, it's through a a recontextualization in Christ, now that we understand that passage in Isaiah, you know, I, you know, that yes. God is with us. So that the New Testament is, or the the person of Christ then, is the the revelational, you know, he is the key. Now that once you say that then, of course, you don't want to fall into some sort of supersessionism in, in or a Marcionite kind of understanding. Then you say, oh, well, in Christ, then, we can just get rid of the Old Testament or we don't really need the Jews. There is the sense that God has been at work throughout history. He's been revealing himself and what he did with at Abraham, what he's done with Moses is itself you know god is acting and that is there is the sense though that those acts are going to be comprehended anew in christ uh and so there is both the idea that here is something new breaking in but yet it is there is still Mm -hmm. uh, an acknowledgement of god at work throughout history
1: well i mean just in the sense that as christians we have doctrinal commitments I don't think we should shy away from those. I think we should, as you said, you know, we have to be wary and careful because Christianity has such a history of anti-Semitism that we don't allow our doctrinal commitments to become internalized in microaggressions or hate towards Jews, which has often happened in history. I think at the same time, what's nice is we're saying that as Christians, we have these doctrinal commitments, and that's why we interpret Scripture the way we do. But we're not saying that Jewish people don't interpret uh, the Hebrew Scriptures well. Uh, we we can learn from the way Jewish people interpret Hebrew Scriptures. And so that's, I'm always a little concerned, I guess, with the idea that somehow Jesus replaces the way we know anything, and so we nobody could ever make sense of the Hebrew scriptures apart from Christ. It's like, well, we have doctrinal commitments that coalesce in a theology that makes sense uh, as Christians that we take to be revealing th- who the mystery of God. The mystery of God is Trinity. But I don't know that I would feel comfortable with saying, well, that automatically means Jewish people cannot understand their own scriptures
0: yeah that uh, we turn to Judaism for insights into the Hebrew scriptures, but having said that, isn't it also the case that they themselves recognize an incompleteness in their own understanding in that the temple, the sacrifices were always pointing beyond themselves?
1: yeah, yeah I mean I think uh, it would you should ask a Jewish theologian. Yeah, I don't think that we would have to come— I don't think that it's necessarily the case that Christians and Jewish scholars have widely divergent readings of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, we have complementary readings in a a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking of Louis Louis Martin and his reading of Galatians, which addresses this, I think gets at it. And that is, you know, the Galatians, we're presuming, are Gentiles. And there are the Judaizers coming in and saying, well, uh, you've got to combine the two things. And so the temptation is on both sides of this. It's, first of all, to completely read Galatians as a repudiation of Judaism as a kind of supersessionism. But, of course, the false teachers are not Jews. They're Judaizers who are fusing a Christian-Jewish understanding to say, well, the one is necessary to the other. And what Paul is saying, even though I'm a Jew and I'm going to continue to practice many of these things, the one is not necessary to the other. But neither do you want, you don't want to just repudiate it and say, oh, well, then we get rid of everything. Uh, and begin, because then you're going to turn around and say, oh, well, that means that in some way there is an essence. And Paul, Paul's point here is that the Jewish history and the Galatian history, neither one is of that great of a significance. His own history is not significant in that sense, in that the one is necessary to the other. But of course, we're all still going to be Galatians or Jews or Gentiles. In other words, we can't just shed our culture, but our own cultural understanding or or just who we are, that this frame is redeemed. You don't want to reify, and I think that's what we're saying in both instances. You know, this is kind of the modern nationalistic movement here, that evangelicals, uh, about 80% of them are Christian Zionists. That is, they're going to essentialize Israel, that what God is doing with Israel is really that's, well, modern-day Israel. That's really what he's doing. And at the same time they're essentializing Israel, they're essentializing the American nation-state. And, of course, both of those are mistakes.
1: Yes, totally agree. Uh, I don't know that you just said so much. Let's <laughs> just dig through. Uh yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, Boy, you're sure agreeable today. <laughs> <laughs> is Martin, when he says these things, like, I, I've read so much recently that's saying, you know, Christianity and Judaism is are both in such formative stages when you're reading the New Testament. That it's very much anachronistic to go back and say, "Oh, well, here are the Jews or Juda, you know, Judaizers is probably a much better way of saying it." But even how did the Judaizers understand these two things? Are there even two distinct things, or is Paul trying to navigate, uh, you know, a practice for this community where there's this problem of? the food laws and people not wanting to eat together. How is Martin really departing from what N.T. Wright does with that passage? I'm, uh, I'm asking out of total ignorance. I don't know that
0: I would be up to answering that, other than the criticism I've read and whether it's a fair criticism. The way that Galatians often gets read in one of the two extremes and what, you know, that Paul is dealing, though, he is dealing with Jewish history, But he's not dealing with it in the sort of salvation history form that we encounter, presumably in somebody like N.T. Wright, that, oh, the the fall and then Israel and then, that all of this is a, a necessary part of recognizing who Christ is. Paul is referencing that history, but he's reading it in such a way that he begins with the promise to Abraham, and then he just skips over, you know, it's not, abraham to the jews it's abraham to christ the promises given to abraham of course abraham's not a jew in 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 that sense that uh, he is the, the father he's the predecessor and so the significance in a pauline understanding is not salvation history but it's promise and the fulfillment of the promise in christ Are the Jews in some way a a kind of intermediate state? Not in the sense that, oh, there's progression through Israel to Christ. In other words, Israel is a marker, even under what Paul is saying. There's this kind of difference that he talks about the slave woman and the free woman. But it's not like Jews are an intermediate stage on the way to Christ in the sense of progress. But you might talk about, oil. Oh, well, there is a, a differentiation. But in the end, Paul reduces all of that to slavery. In other words, the Jews were enslaved. Their enslavement was perhaps peculiar, but not really. And the Galatians were enslaved, so much so that he can say, you know, you Galatians, you, you were idolaters. And if you return then to what these Judaizers are saying— The equivalent is going back to idolatry. And so Paul's depiction of the elementary principles that are at work, they're at work in Israel, in the law, at least in the human orientation to that law, and they're at work in Galatia. So the escape from those elementary principles, the enslavement, is what Paul's emphasizing in his depiction Mm -hmm. of his own history you know he talks about his own conversion and he talks about that conversion God revealed himself to me in Christ it's there in the Galatian history he's saying you Galatians Christ was portrayed crucified to you that is he's saying what happened to me is what happened to you and that this God, you know God breaking in to history is the the significant thing the history Is not the significant
1: thing. So, is it like predicated on uh, an experience? What does that mean? So, how uh, how does one encounter God breaking into history in Christ?
0: Well, it is in the preaching of the gospel. You know, Paul will talk about it that the gospel that I preach to you, and of course, it is in his own case the encounter with the light of christ so it's not that it's uh, apart from you know it's not in isolation from the gospel it's not an and a part of the presentation of the gospel is the present you know that these things happened but when you encounter christ in the gospel in the presentation of this history it's no longer simply reducible to those past events because the event is now unfolding in your life, so that the event continues, the act of God continues in
1: each of our conversions. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around what the significant. So, like, you take take something like the road to Emmaus account, and Luke portrays Jesus as uh, you know explaining the scriptures of Israel to explain who he is. Isn't that sort of what Paul's always? I mean, Paul's always quoting scripture to explain who Jesus is. Is it? Is the distinction there? Tribe? I don't. I guess I don't understand the distinction because you're always dealing with, uh, or I'd be happy to make a distinction between history. It's like there's history and then there's history that's written about. Like his, the history is whatever we're preaching, right? The history is not like whatever happened. Like I'm fine with that in the sense that uh, we don't need to get behind. Uh, you encounter Jesus in the words preached. Okay, like we don't have to go looking for Jesus anywhere. I find, I see where that's maybe important to say. But I don't understand how How would you know Jesus apart from, as you said, the gospel being preached, but isn't the gospel even then preached in the words of the Hebrew Scriptures? Like it seems to be all of a piece in some way. What's the distinction between
0: yeah, I think, I think it is. It is saying what is prior. Is the act of God in Christ prior to or the, the thing that he's doing that now reconstitutes or is an insight into the Hebrew Scriptures in the same way that what God was doing with Abraham? In other words, it's God's act that is prior to or is formative of our understanding. So that you can read the Hebrew Scriptures apart from Christ, and maybe that, maybe even to say it in that way is already wrong. But in other words, apart from the full revelation of Christ that we have in the New Testament, because Christ is always, in a sense, being revealed. But that revelation that we have in Christ means that we're going to go back, and we're we're going to read passages. Like, you know, Isaiah's God with us passage. And now we realize, oh, this is God with us, that the light has broken in to the darkness, that God's act is fulfilled in Christ, so that we're not going to read the Old Testament. You know, this is the, the, I think, failure of recent Old Testament scholarship, that we were probably all subjected to. And that is, oh, well, we just have to read it in the uh, understanding of the original authors. Well, the original authors, maybe they didn't understand it themselves. And I think we're acknowledging that prophecy always, even in the mind of the original prophets, pointed to something that they were looking to being fulfilled in Christ. And so I picture you know when we we often wish we knew what jesus was saying on the road to Emmaus. oh i think we do know i think that's what the uh, is being unfolded to us in the epistles in the in the writings of the new testament there is the explanation of how christ is actually the center of that whole story but we can't locate that until we have the incarnation
1: well, i mean yes i guess i don't understand So, in some sense, it's to say that the point of Scripture is to reveal God to us, not to. I mean, it's just be to say the point of Scripture isn't so that we know what the prophet was thinking. The point of Scripture isn't that we would know. It's not just so that we would have a nice history of Israel. Like the whole point of it is written to reveal God through Christ, right? Okay. Uh, right, right. But what's, So what's uniquely apocalyptic about that in the sense that people weren't already saying this?
0: I think it is the, the notion there is a reconstituting, a breaking into history, that this is an, an act of God in Christ uh, that we're not going to interpret through the context that we're in. Uh, it's not like, oh, this is a parallel to what I already know. And this is the tension I'm having, you know, this is the the reason this conversation is interesting, because I think what an apocalyptic understanding is saying is this is not information that, you know, we're just adding Christ to what we already know, or this is on a continuum, even to the way that we've formerly known. This is not an addition to the law, but rather it is a complete reconstitution of the whole thing.
1: Well, I think in that regard, the conversation we're having is just misconstrued in the sense that what I'm what I'm saying with critical realism is, okay, that's everything you said. That's sort of at the doctrinal level. But how do you read the Bible? How do you uh, even make sense of a question like who is Jesus? Is the process of knowing is it, we're we're just talking about the process of knowing in critical realism, uh, which is to say that when you come to scripture and you read, say, Paul in Galatians, you think Paul has something meaningful to say. Maybe just to the Galatians, maybe it's universal in the sense that it's meaningful for us too. Or you could say it in terms of the Great Commission. You know, Jesus says, go out and tell all people, baptize them, bring them into the kingdom sort of thing. He's assuming that his words, his life, the work that he has done, is in some way meaningful to all people regard as you were talking about just a moment ago regardless of their history it's going to be meaningful to them okay that's good so now how do we how do we communicate this And it's in what I'm talking about with critical realism is really in that does the communication make sense in the sense can you present Jesus to somebody in a way that it's going, Jesus is going to be the answer to life's biggest question. What does it mean to be a human being? And then you're going to be able to make a judgment of fact on that that changes who you are. And I'm just saying, yes, that's what's happening. Uh, I think what you're talking about is actually at the next level, more of like doctrines in the sense of how does Revelation work?
0: Maybe the the tension here is that you're describing Lonergan and Ben Meyer, who I'm not that familiar with, and I'm I'm referencing a kind of critique of a development out of that that may be a misunderstood development of that. So we don't want to confuse those two things and, and talk at cross purposes. I'm always assuming that Lonergan is fully taking into account something like what I'm describing, but I don't, I, I can't claim to know that I've not I read him, but the difference mm-hmm. would be that once we t- have God as the object of our knowledge, that in fact, knowledge itself is changed up in Christ, and that knowing then is determined within the parameters of what it means to know Christ.
1: So, what does that mean? I
0: assume that it goes back to our uh, the opening of our discussion, that our knowing outside of Christ always is going to take a particular form, and that is that there's a subject-object duality. Okay. And that we're always within this tension. What's happening in Christ, that Christ, you know, his knowing, and entering into who he is, that the subject-object duality is undone so that there's no longer this striving between the noumena or the phenomena or between the subject and object, that the subject and object then are united in Christ, so that knowing God in Christ is an overcoming of the tension of the way that we, in fact, are constituted as knowing subjects. So it's a description of entering into an alternative with God as the object of knowing, subjectivity is itself reconstituted so that there's an alternative
1: understanding. Uh, how, how does this actually happen for people, though? I mean, it certainly doesn't happen at baptism for most people. Yeah. I, I would hesitate you know, to say most people don't ever even have this conversation. Most people aren't even aware that they're doing subject-object duality. But we usually, in a gracious mood, assume these people are still Christians So, like, I guess that's the part, like, it sounds just like sort of a abstract doctrinal assertion that uh, I'm just wondering, how does that actually play out?
0: I I like your question in that what has to be part of this is that our own discipleship is an entry into what we have in Christ. Uh, We all believe there's a reconstitution of human agency in Christ. And, and, of course, the tension is, well, how? How does that happen? That's your question. And I think it's a good question that this sort of conversation gets at, that we recognize, and I don't mean to, to make it completely dependent upon our capacity for recognition, but nor do I want to, to leave human agency outside of it. In other words, as we fully engage in who we are in Christ, I presume that we can actually make progress in being
1: Christians. So I agree, like obviously I think something happens in Christianity where we make progress as Christians. Is there like an example though where, I guess I'm just hesitant, who has gotten this? Who has understood this aright and that has developed a quality of saintliness or holiness in their life? Is there an example?
0: Yeah, I assume that that is what Paul is saying when he says, follow me as I follow Christ. It is something that's to be modeled to us in our own lives. Do we encounter examples of this? Oh, I think we encounter it all the time. We realize, oh, here is someone who is living in a a kind of unity, uh, a peaceableness, that is modeled for us then in all sorts of ways, that it may be in their treatment, their loving treatment of other people, because ultimately that's what we're describing, is a life of love. Because as long as we're caught up in a subject-object duality, in a kind of antagonism, I presume that we're going to continually fall back into othering other people or essentializing ourselves over and against the other. And what love is going to do is it's no longer going to be Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Not that we're obliterating those categories, but those categories are no longer definitive for us. And so I think we can talk about it, that there are those who articulate it for us. There may be those who live it out for us, but I presume that there's all sorts of models that are given to us that we can imitate.
1: So I think that your critique of subject object duality is similar, complementary, or maybe even all, nearly the same thing as what uh, Lonergan or I've been explaining is, you know, this critique of picture thinking, uh, you know, described in both the same way, whether it's from the perspective of a naive realist or from the idealist. It's the site, you know, you could do the, Lonergan does a silly kind of example of, uh, you know, Jack and Jill both hold up their hands and they realize the eye is not in the hands, but they see the hand as object. And so uh, then, You know, Jack says, this is my hand. And Jill says, well, I think this is my hand. And so there you have the naive realist and the idealist. But the whole problem is the way we're going about this is like knowing what my hand is is seeing it. You know, that's not real understanding is what he would be saying. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at is saying we're getting away from this duality of subject-object thinking. I guess what I wonder is, are you positing there's this difference or that there's this change that happens somehow when you become a Christian? How does one overcome subject-object duality? Yeah,
0: again, I, I really like your question because that's the tension in what I'm saying. Okay. And that is that I, I presume that, first of all, I think that as Christians, what we're saying is that, this is, that what is given to us in Christ is uniquely that. In other words, that there, there really is a, a difference that's constituted. But isn't it the case that at some level that people are able to do that, that suddenly people are absorbed in uh, what they're doing in such a way that they are changed by, you know, and it can be any, any uh, process. You know, this is what we're describing, I think, is involved in the scientific revolution, I think it is a description of the linguistic shift in philosophy that's being described in a Wittgensteinian understanding. But of course, the way that I'm reading Wittgenstein is that he's truly entering into, I think, in his own personal journey, an understanding of the role of language that is fully Christian, that he's recognizing this as an embodied experience but I presume that we all, you know, that, we're, that just the nature of the world, of who God is and who we are, that there are going to be, for, for many of us, that suddenly we're, we're going to encounter God in ways that maybe we're not fully aware of, but in Christ we're, uh, that, that is open to us.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, um, it's sort of Augustine's hang-up in a way. He talks about, you know, he couldn't imagine... He thought that the world, everything, reality, if something was real, that it had to have a body, which that was then problematic for him accepting God as the Christian God who, uh, you know, doesn't have a body because if you're embodied, you're within time and space sort of thing. Uh, you know, the universe would be infinite and God would be a thing within the universe. He almost describes it as a turn away from subject-object duality or picture thinking uh, that allows him to become a Christian. I guess we could say that's a grace. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to think about. Like, how does that actually happen? I think, you know, Lonergan would say it's intellectual conversion because it involves, as you're describing, it's not just, a, oh, now I know something new, but rather the way I view the world is now changed up. That's fascinating. Well, I think we're running out of time, but you should have the last word, Paul. What do you think? Uh, what's your estimation of both what you're doing and apocalyptic stuff and how critical realism may or may not be helpful Mm -hmm. to that conversation.
0: Well, I I think that we've hit upon an an agreement. In other words, you've engaged Lonergan and Ben Meyer, and I really haven't done that, but from what our discussion is that there is in fact, no inherent tension there, Uh, that these two topics, that that there's a complete or a potential for a complete reconciliation. Uh, or, or agreement between what's happening, but that in fact there may be a kind of stunted Lonerganian understanding that is not fully appreciative as you get uh, of Lonergan, as you might get it into right? Oh,
1: well, thanks. This has been a good conversation.
0: Wonderful, wonderful talk. I'm glad we could do this.
1: Thank you for listening to
0: this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at Patreon.com/PaulAxton, or by donating at forgingplowshares.org/donate.